text for the sermon this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We've been making our way slowly through the book of Philippians, and now we come to the last chapter and, and Paul's closing remarks to the church at Philippi. And we'll consider the, the first three verses of these closing remarks this morning. Let's turn our minds and our hearts to the reading of God's holy, inspired word. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same minds in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. In God's providence, we have heard many sermons on unity lately. Ramesh Prakashpalan, in his charge to you at my ordination, urged you from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13, to be at peace among yourselves, lest you be devoured by one another. Last Sunday morning, Pastor Bruce Parnell preached on the friendship between David and Jonathan and spoke of it as a picture of what our friendships in the church ought to look like. And last Sunday evening, Dr. David Whitla preached for us in Oklahoma City from Psalm 133, calling us and exhorting us to unity. And then I've been working through the book of Philippians, we have seen time and time again that the book of Philippians speaks a lot about unity. Paul regularly calls us to be of one mind, to dwell in one accord, to have the same love. And our text this morning is no exception to these calls. Unless we shut our ears and tune our brains to something else, thinking, I've, I've heard enough sermons on unity lately, I want to urge you to hear what God has to say to us from his word. As Christians, we believe there's no such things as coincidences or accidents. And of course, we should be careful in interpreting the providence of God. But in God's providence, he has seen fit to call us time and time again lately to hear admonitions and, and callings to unity from his word. And that should encourage us to sit up, to listen, and take note to what God is telling us from his word. We should hear the weight of these calls to unity. And these calls to unity are not superfluous. We live in a culture that is deeply divided. Around the time of last year's election, there are people on the internet calling for civil war. You may even remember that Walmart pulled guns off the shelves. Social media algorithms drive disunity, creating echo chambers, encouraging us to only ever hear one side to a particular story. 
media farms and other parts of the world publish content as a type of propaganda to encourage this disunity. The real danger here is that this type of mentality, this disunity that we see in the world and the culture around us can start to find its way into the church of God. Where we think unless somebody is in a hundred percent agreement with me on every single particular issue, if they're not in agreement with me, well, then I, I can't be friends with them. I can't converse with them. Start to view them as our enemies. Even as the world engages in war against the church, we need to engage in a war for peace within the church. We need to militantly fight for unity. And so this morning, let's hear God's word from Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3, under the theme, Warring for Peace. And the first way that we can war for peace is by having a love for the brethren. By having a love for the brethren. Philippians 4 begins with declaration of Paul's intense love for the church at Philippi. He says in Philippians 4 verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. These are not empty words from Paul. These are words that, that speak to, to Paul's true affection for the church. The church was beloved to Paul. It was dear to him because they worshipped the beloved Son of the Father. Paul loved the Philippian church because they knew the love that God had towards them. Paul does not say in any of his other epistles that he longed for these other churches. Paul didn't say he longed for the church at, uh, at Thessalonica. But he says he longs for the church at Philippi. And he longed for this church because they greatly desire the full realization of their citizenship in heaven. They sought for the things of Christ. And the church at Philippi was, was Paul's joy because they found their joy in the Lord. Another hallmark of, of the epistle to the Philippians is the continual exhortations to joy. The Philippians church was not Paul's trial or annoyance. It was his true joy. They were a source of praise and worship for Paul. They, heeding Paul's exhortations, rejoiced in God. They knew the joy of salvation. And Paul could say that the Philippian church was his crown because of this. The Philippian church was Paul's crown because they manifested the fruits of the Spirit. They were evidence that Paul had not preached in vain. He had not labored in vain. Paul truly loved Philippian church. 
And the love that Paul had for the Philippian church teaches us that unity should be fostered in the attitude of us as your pastors and elders. We as elders are called to love the sheep that Christ has entrusted us with. Elders, do you view the sheep that you shepherd as your joy and crown? Do you consider them your beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ? What a joy it is for the people of God to know that they have elders who truly love them in the Lord who pray for them, who rejoice when they rejoice, who weep when they weep. Congregation, know the true love that we as elders and pastors have for you. Know that we desire your growth in Christ. Know that you are our friends and that we love you even as Pastor Bruce reminded you last week. And as we think about warring for peace, love in the church starts with love for the church. I'm not talking about love for a building. I'm not even primarily talking about love for particular doctrines or distinctives. Love for the church must be a love for the members of the church, recognizing that they are redeemed sinners just like you. We who are gathered here this morning all share a unity in the bond of Christ. We have fellowship around the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have a love for Jesus. And so we could say that love for the church always starts with a love for the head of the church, starts with a love for Jesus. But say you were to ask, why should I love this, this particular person in the church? Well, many of the churches around us would say that you should love this particular person because they're the same age as you, because they're from the same generation, because they're the same interests. And so we note that many churches around us divide up their worship services between the young and the old, between that cultural demographic and, and this cultural demographic. Unity is just an external thing. But how do we biblically answer that question? Why should I love this particular person in, in the church? The scripture's exhortations to love one another in the church always stems from the truth that you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the redeemed people of God. Your identity starts with who you are before God and it proceeds from that point. You should love one another because you are all followers of Christ. And Christ has commanded you to love one another. You are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. You are Christians. The bond of faith we share as believers destroys and breaks down all other demographic and cultural barriers. Young can rejoice with old. Old 
can understand Yun because they know the humbling truth of being saved by the precious blood of Christ. African American can worship together with Caucasian because Jesus is not just the savior of one particular nation, but every single ton in a tribe and nation shall confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God the Father. So I ask you, do you view the people sitting around you as beloved in the Lord? Do you view them as fellow redeemed sinners? Do you view them as your joy? must war for peace by having a love for the brethren. The second way that we, love, we are to war for peace is in heeding the words of admonition that Paul gives in Philippians 4, verse 2. There Paul says, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yodia and Syntyche were two women in the Philippian church who evidently were not of the same mind. They were disunified. They were struggling to agree. These women did not consider the other beloved in the Lord. However, strikingly, these women were faithful gospel laborers. They had labored with Paul in the gospel while he was there in Philippi do not know, necessarily know what their role in helping Paul was, but they had a role, and they were faithful in fulfilling that role. But recognizing that these women were faithful gospel laborers should challenge us. We tend to think that disunity only exists among those who are on the peripheries of the church, that it is only... There for those who struggle in their faith. Those who, we might say, only half-heartedly serve Christ. But disunity existed among these faithful gospel laborers. This is a sobering reminder that even the most ardent and faithful men and women can fall into division. Recall that even Miriam, the prophetess, became rebellious and disgruntled against Moses. And even though Paul mentions two women in particular, we are not to think that this is uh, an issue just for women. Men can be divided. Men can be unreconciled together. Now Paul does not tell us what the particular issue was here does not tell us what the content of this division was. But we can make several observations. It was likely not about a doctrinal issue. It was also not likely about a difference of belief regarding Christian living. Paul always makes doctrinal concerns and issues about Christian living a matter of profound clarity. Paul does not shy away from calling people to right thinking, to right doctrine. He also does not shy away from exhorting and urging people to live in a manner consistent with their calling. We just looked 
Several weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, Paul not only rebukes the antinomians for not living in a manner consistent with Christian doctrines, he, he went so far as to say that they were enemies of the cross of Christ who had made gods of their bellies. But he also rebuked the Judaizers, those who had a wrong understanding, a wrong belief, a wrong doctrine regarding the work of Christ. They said Christ's work wasn't sufficient. You have to add the rites and the rituals of the old administration of the covenant of grace to your faith. So, Paul, these women were likely not disagreeing over doctrine or matters of practical Christian living. But perhaps these women were quarreling about an offense that had occurred. Perhaps it was a matter of personality conflicts. Perhaps one of them had said something to the other that was not well received. Perhaps one of the women misunderstood the intentions of the other and considered the other rude or dismissive. Regardless of what the matter was, Paul urges them, he urges them both to seek out unity. Both of them had to work in that regard. Paul is, Paul is very specific here. He first implores Yodia, and then he implores Syntyche to be of the same mind. Paul could have just have easily said, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. Well, no, I implore Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same nine. But he uses that same word for both of them. Both of them have the responsibility to pursue peace, to pursue unity. Both of them had to extend the hand of fellowship. Well, this is an important point for us to consider. In conflicts, the temptation can be to think the other person has the primary responsibility to work out the conflict. But that is not so. The responsibility is for both parties. And there are other scriptures that make this abundantly clear. In Matthew 5, verse 23 through 24, Christ says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Here Christ makes it abundantly clear that it is the offender who needs to make an, the initiative in resolving a conflict. But then we read Luke 17, that the responsibility also lies with the person who has been offended to go and seek reconciliation. Luke 17, verse 3 says, Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. We like to forget this in conflict. In a conflict, it's so much easier to say, the person who has sinned against me, he should make the first contact. Why should I have to go and reconcile with him? No, he should come to me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you, I urge you, examine your conduct with one another. 
If you know you have sinned against another person and that is unresolved, go and seek forgiveness. If you have been holding against a grudge against someone for, for a week, for a month, for, for, for a decade, examine yourself to be sure you have legitimate biblical reason to have an offense. Try to connect it to one of the Ten Commandments. And if you do have a legitimate biblical reason, gently and lovingly let them know that they have sinned against you, but also go seeking forgiveness for not having dealt with that sooner. Brothers and sisters, there is a true joy and peace that comes with reconciliation. That is one of the great fruits of forgiveness and repentance. You're keeping yourself from a, a profound grace of God if you do not exercise these characteristics of a Christian. You are letting the devil war against your soul. You are not warring for peace. So heed the admonition of Paul. The third way that we can war for peace is by seizing hold of unity. At our session meeting this past week, Pastor Bruce reminded us that planting a church is an act of war. Such an act of war will be met with attacks of the enemy. When a country is at war, it cannot just casually go about its daily life like when it was at peace. Well, no, it must either go on the offensive or the defensive. It must strategize. It must engage the enemy. And we as the church of Christ are surrounded by many enemies. We must remember that Satan loves a disunified church. Satan loves to destroy churches through disunity. He can wreak havoc on the lambs of Christ as they struggle with anger, resentment, and bitterness towards members. Their faith is hampered. In disagreements, they can quickly lose sight of the gospel. They lose sight of the joy of Christ. And not only the devil can stir up division, but our own sinful flesh also can stir up division. Attacks on unity do not typically come from, from outside the church, but are often developing and festering inside the church. And so we must have a, a militant unity within the church. And we see those borne out in Philippians 4 verse 3 where Paul says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. You know, sir, that, that first Paul reminds them that the, these people you might be disagreeing with, their names are in the book of life. They are fellow believers. So help them. Notice that Paul also asks a particular person in the Philippian congregation to help these two women agree. He refers to a singular you. 
and, and a singular true companion. So this true companion was probably a person who had some leadership or authority in the church. An immediate practical application for this passage is that when there is a public disagreement or a public display of a lack of unity, then it is the elder's job to step in and to ensure that the disagreement is worked out. This is a God-given responsibility that the session has. We should not try to avoid it. We, are, we, we will have to answer for the way we have handled disunity in the church. We must go on the offensive when there is disunity, seeking for a sheep to be unified. But we also see the idea of a militant unity brought out in the word help. Paul urged this true companion to help these women. When we think of the word help, we often think of a child helping her mother with the dishes. But here the word help is used much more in the context of a firefighter rescuing someone from a burning building. There's a degree of earnestness associated with this word. A degree of intentional militancy. A certain seizing and arresting of an individual to help them work through a problem. You must have an earnest zeal to battle against disunity in the church. What are some practical Ways that you can have a militant unity within the church. First, to keep short accounts with God, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are living at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, immediately seek reconciliation with them. Do not rest until you have exhausted every means of reconciliation. Humbly confront them of your sin, remembering that you, you are the chief of sinners. Remembering how hard you struggle against particular sins in your life. Remembering that, that the battle for sanctification is not an easy battle. You're constantly yourself falling flat on your face against sin. Remember. That God has shown an astounding measure of grace towards you. Christ died for you. And God could have sent you to suffer eternally in the fires of hell. And when you refuse to reconcile with brothers and sisters in Christ. When you refuse to show forgiveness. You're spitting in the face of that redemption. You, of all people, are unthankful for what God has done for you. Those who are slow to forgive and those who are slow to repent are those who are slow to understand God's grace. Our understanding of God's forgiveness for us is demonstrated in our readiness to forgive others. But why is it so important to seek reconciliation? It is so important because it keeps bitterness from springing up. Anytime there is a conflict, 
hearts. There is a potential for bitterness to be planted. But bitterness is a deadly, noxious weed in the garden of the church. It's a deadly poison for the vitality of the soul. Bitterness is like army worms. I'm not sure if, well, I've, I've not had much personal interaction with army worms, but we've had something of a plague uh, of them in Oklahoma City. And once you get army worms into your lawn, unless you deal with it, they will completely destroy your lawn. It is the same thing with bitterness. Unless you deal with bitterness, it will completely destroy your soul. Paul says in Hebrews 12, verse 14 through 15, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Notice Paul's heavy words. Those who let bitterness into their hearts must be careful lest they fall short of the grace of God. They will become defiled if they do not deal with that root of bitterness. That root of bitterness will become an oak if left to grow. We must pursue peace with all people, not just those we get along with, not just those who understand us, not just those who we like, but all people. We must go on the offensive in showing love to others in the church. We cannot be on the sidelines. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may not like someone in the church. You may disagree with them on a number of issues. Perhaps they've sinned against you. Now hopefully you do not view them as an enemy. But no matter how you view them, if you were to take Paul's words in Romans 12 verse 21 to heart, you cannot take the back seats. You need to go on a campaign showing the great love that you have for that person. You need to shower them with goodness and mercy, seeking out many opportunities to love them. Have them over for dinner. Invite them into your life. Pray for them. You are to overcome evil with good. That is a costly but blessed warfare. It is costly to our pride, but it is an astounding demonstration of the love of God. Finally, as you war for peace, let me also urge you to war against gossip. It is far easier to take our concerns with somebody or fences with somebody to a friend, rather than to biblically resolve a conflict or disagreement. Gossip can seem like a harmless vice. 
I'm just having a frank and an honest conversation with my friend, or I'm just trying to develop a right opinion about this particular issue or what this particular person did to me. The gossip produces the rotten fruit of discord. Proverbs 16, verse 28 says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. The whispering of gossip destroys the unity of the church. Gossip produces party factions within the body of Christ. Gossip is only interested in hearing one side of the story. Gossip assaults the very members of your own body because it does not seek to care for the other members but tear them down. To carry that analogy further, say you were to to break your left arm and you set your left arm, you went and, and grasped hold of your right arm and just started yanking it, pulling on it, trying to fix your left arm. Well, you're going to be in a lot of pain. And eventually you might break your right arm trying to heat fix your left arm. That is what gossip does. That is the fruitlessness of gossip. And that is the hurt and the danger that gossip causes. You have been hurt. Then you go to another person and talk about how you have been hurt. And so you hurt the other person. And you cause damage to your own soul. Let us be warring for peace by zealously seizing hold of unity by seeking to foster unity, by going on the offensive for unity in the church and loving one another. So in conclusion, let us stand fast. Let us stand fast, as Paul calls us in the epistle to the Philippians. Let us stand fast in warring for peace. Let us delight in one another as the people of God, rejoicing that we have one hope of our calling, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Savior. Let us rejoice in that. What a blessed privilege we as a people of God have. There are going to be many times that we fail at this call to unity be many times that we are not earnestly warring for peace, but we are warring against one another in the body of Christ. But in such times, let's remember how God warred for us, how he pursued after us, how the Prince of Peace came into this world to purchase redemption for us. How he warred against the principalities of this earth. How he zealously warred that we might know what it is to live at peace with our Father. Let us know the love that God showed towards us and show that same love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we come before you giving you thanks, giving you praise that you have showered us with love, that your goodness and mercy pursue us. It follows us to the end of our days. Lord, help us to pursue such grace and mercy in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to war for unity that we might with one voice declare how great a salvation we have in Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have not been unified. Forgive us for our failures in seeking reconciliation one with another. And help us, Lord, to ever strive to love one another even as you have loved us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn our psalm books to sing Psalm 127, the A selection. Our attempts at unity are fruitless without the blessing of the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 8 says, Unless the Lord build up the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord the city guards, its watchmen watch in vain. We need the grace of the Lord to guard us against disunity. We need the grace of the Lord to build us up in unity. Let's stand and sing Psalm 127, the A selection. 